What's up, Liquid Church? How y'all doing? Fantastic. Well, listen, I am Nithin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome all of our campuses watching throughout the state of New Jersey. If you're watching online, so glad you're here. Or if you're listening on the podcast, we're so excited for, that you're here for our series at the movies, our summer series that we're doing. We're kind of looking at some of the biggest blockbusters and asking what is it that God's trying to teach us? What are the spiritual themes and the spiritual truths that we can learn from the things that we watch? And so this week, we'll be looking at the movie Lion. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have not yet seen Lion? You just haven't seen it yet, okay? How many of you have seen the movie Lion? Okay, out of those of you who've seen it, who cried your way through the entire, like, ugly crying, right? Like, snot and everything. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a powerful movie, right? It's gut-wrenching, and it's actually the true story of a man named Saru Brierly. He's a picture of Saru, and he's right next to the two actors that played him. There's Sonny Pavar and Dev Patel. Dev is actually from England. Sonny is from India. Saru grew up in Australia, so a very diverse international cast uh, and characters, and really powerful story, and uh, one of the things that we're going to be kind of exploring in, in, in this series. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, huge spoiler alert, Okay. Um, we're going to be kind of showing some stuff, but listen, the movie came out in March on Blu-ray. It's on Netflix, so if you haven't seen it, um, I'm sorry. Like, wh where are your priorities? I mean, come on. First things first, right? But listen, even if you haven't seen it, I really think this is something, a movie that you want to go back and watch because it really is a powerful, powerful picture. And there's a lot of spiritual truth in this movie. And it's the story about how Saru Briarly, how at five years old, he was separated from his family and took a 25-year quest to find them again using, of all things, Google Earth. Powerful movie, true story. In fact, why don't we go ahead and watch the trailer of the movie Lion. Let's uh, start with where you're from. Calcutta. Which part? I'm adopted, I'm not really Indian. I'm starting to remember. Sarah, you're a beautiful boy. A life I'd forgotten. Are you okay? I had another family. What happened? I was lost. I have to find my way back home. How long were you on the train? A couple of days. A couple of days. It would take a lifetime to search all the stations in India. Do you have any idea what it's like? How every day my real brother screams my name. I always thought that I could keep this family together. What if you do find home and they're not even there? And you just keep searching? I don't have a choice. What was she like? Beautiful. Every night I imagine that I'm walking those streets. And I know every single step of the way. And I whisper in her ear. I'm here. The movie Lion, as you can tell, it's, it's an emotional story. It's an emotional a very powerful journey. It actually begins in 1986 in the region of India called Kandwa. 
And uh, Saru at the time is five years old, and he, he's part of this loving, close-knit family, but they're also a family that lives in extreme poverty. And so actually the kids, at a very early age, I mean, Saru's out there at five, they're working to support the family. In fact, his older brother, Gadu, uh, ha has a habit of actually traveling to other villages and other towns. He's away for days at a time uh, for the very purpose of finding work so that he can care for the family. He's the oldest brother. He's kind of the man of the house. And one day, as he's about to depart in one of these multi-day trips, Saru, uh, being the younger, annoying little brother, says, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. He says, no, you're too small. It's a night thing. You can't do it. But of course, you know, the younger brother kind of pushes and gets his way. So the two of them leave together uh, to go to the train station, and they're kind of on their way there. And as they get to the train station, Saru, again, he's five years old. This is work at night. He falls asleep. And so Gudu is trying to wake him up. He's like, Saru, let's go. Let's go. And he's like, leave me alone. And he leaves his brother on a bench at the train station, and he tells him, stay here. I'll be right back. Hours pass. And Saru wakes up, and he looks around, and he doesn't see his brother Gadu. In fact, he doesn't see anybody. The, the platform's empty. So he walks around until he finds an empty train car, and this is where we pick up the story. Let's watch. Gudu? Gudu? As a five-year-old, just the terror you'd feel. You're, you're just on a train thinking that it's not going anywhere, and then all of a sudden you wake up and it's speeding away, and you don't know where your brother is. You're separated from your mom. You're separated from your family. I mean, have you, do you ever remember when you were a kid and you got separated from your parents, maybe at the mall or a department store? I remember one time that happened. I lost sight of my mom and just that sense of panic and that sense of fear of, oh, no, I, I've got I've to find them. And, but then this paralysis of, I, I just don't know what to do. And so Saru is on this train. There's no food. There's no water. Because Saru didn't realize this, but, but he was actually on that train. He'd gone for about 1,000 miles started in Kandwa, India, ended up all the way in Kolkata on the other side of the country of India. 
He's lonely, he's scared, he doesn't know how he got where he is, he doesn't know how he's going to get out of this situation. And when the train finally stops, he ends up in this crowded station. There's thousands and thousands of people there, and yet no one is paying any mind to this little lost boy. It doesn't seem like anyone really, really cares and he's trying to tell people and ask for help. Can, can you help me find my home? I think it's, it's, it's called Ganestale. Can you help me? Can you help me? But you see, no one can really understand him. You know, India is a, a country where there's 23 official languages. Saru grew up speaking Hindi. In Kolkata, they speak Bengali. They literally can't understand it. It's like he's in a, a different country. And so as the movie progresses, Saru is begging and doing whatever it takes to survive. He, there are near misses. There was a time where he almost was kidnapped by human traffickers. And as all this is going on, he, he eventually ends up in this overcrowded, dirty orphanage. But while there, it's a tough place. It's a dark place. Kids are being sexually abused, physically abused. Yet somehow Saru is able to escape the worst of it. And eventually, a, um, a social worker comes and sits down with him and says, um, Saru, we've been looking for your family. We can't find them. But there's this other family in Australia that wants to adopt you. Now remember, you're five years old. You don't fully understand what, what's happening here. You, know, you, you can't read. You can't write. You're, you're kind of at the mercy of whatever adults are around. And now, all of a sudden, he finds himself going to Australia. And he was adopted by a lovely family called the Briarleys. And they're played by Nicole Kidman and David Wenham. And it seems like things may get better. But at the same point, he's still this little lost Indian boy. His mom doesn't know where he is. His brother doesn't know where he is. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever felt lost? Maybe, maybe not um, geographically lost, but maybe just personally, like just lost with your life. Maybe you, you felt lost relationally. Maybe you're hoping, man, for a different relationship status than you have today, and you feel just kind of lost in that. And in fact, the other day I was talking to a woman, and um, she, um, she was in an abusive marriage, and she finally left her husband. And uh, he was the provider. He controlled everything. And so now she's telling me, you know, Nathan, now I've got to take care of these boys by myself. I have to be the provider. I have to remember how to balance a checkbook again. And I just, there's just so many details. I feel so overwhelmed. I feel so lost. Or maybe lost professionally. You know, I was talking to a guy this past week who's been working at this same job for 20, 25 years, and it was, his, it was his heart, it was his calling, he loved it, and then all of a sudden it was gone. And just trying to process through that loss and just trying to figure out, you know, I really felt this is what I was supposed to do, and now I just feel aimless, I feel, I feel lost. Or how about spiritually lost? You ever felt spiritually lost, maybe far away from God? I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who had lost her mother and her sister in just a handful of years to cancer. And her sister left behind this beautiful one-year-old. And she said, Nathan, I grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, believing that God is good, everything happens for a reason, but this just seems so random. It just seems so tragic. How can I believe that God is good? How can I believe that there's a plan in, in this? 
I think we've all experienced those kind of times where we just feel lost and kind of overwhelmed. But if it's not in your life personally, look at our society and culture. I mean, you talk about feeling and seeming lost. I mean, look at the events that happened at Charlottesville the other day. Like, literally, um, we thought, hey, we, maybe we've moved on beyond racism and bigotry, but we found that it's alive and well. Or, or how about just global poverty in general, right? You look around the world and you see all this poverty and refugees, and it seems like we're so powerless against it. Or how about even in our own backyard, you look at the opioid crisis, Right? There are more people dying from overdoses because of the opioid crisis than the number of Americans that went in the Vietnam War. It seems like we're lost wherever we look. In fact, this is one of the themes of Scripture that talks about humanity. Humanity as a whole, we're lost. It seems like we're kind of floundering. But another theme that we find in Scripture is no matter how lost we may think we are, there is a God that's on the search for us. You see, God wants lost people found. That's the heart of God. It's the heart of the Father. God wants lost people found. And if you're like, well, how do I know that? How do I really know that's the heart of God? Well, there's a great passage that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 15, verses 8 to 10. If you have a Bible app, you can go ahead and get set up there, or you can just follow along on your notes. But in Luke 15, 8 to 10, uh, there's actually, uh, we're going to be looking at one story. Jesus actually tells three stories to really kind of talk about the heart of God. We're really going to look at two of them, a little out of sequence. But the first story, many, some of you know this, it's the story of the lost coin, about a woman who's lost a coin. So let's kind of take a look at that. Starting at verse 8, it says this. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, and by the way, whatever you see in bold, why don't we just say those things together, and what? Loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she what? Finds it. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever lost your wallet? Anyone ever, like, lost your wallet or your cell phone, right? And man, it is like bedlam until you find it, right? And so this woman has an issue with coins, with, with some loose change. Like, she's got some coins, and then all of a sudden, uh, she loses one, and she's like, where did it go? And she's panicking. She's like, I, I have to find my lost coin. I have to get it. I, I, have to, I, I can't go forward until I find this coin. And maybe you've, you've read this story, and you're kind of wondering, dude, what is the deal with this coin? You know, right? Like, like, what's going on here? Well, this coin, these 10 coins are actually the equivalent to what we would call today our wedding ring. You ever lose a wedding ring? Right? You know what that's like. If, if you're married, you, if you lose a wedding ring, like, like everything stops until you find it, right? You know, I remember um, I was with a bunch of friends. We're at the beach. We're playing volleyball. And one of my friends is like, oh my gosh, I can't find my wedding ring. And literally all of us are on the ground sifting through every grain of sand <laughs> until we finally find the wedding ring. So that's kind of the, the level of frenzy and, and, and how, how kind of fanatical this one woman is. Like she's like literally like looking through the couch cushions. She's, she's on the ground, on the floor, looking around, trying to, trying to find this coin, and she can't find it, she can't find it. But then she eventually does find it. And she goes, ah, oh, my coin. I, I found my coin. Now what does the scripture say? She goes, she finds her coin, puts it in her pocket, and moves on. Does it say that? No. What does she do? She finds her coin, and then what? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, and why don't we all say this together? It says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. So this woman, she finds her lost coin, and she has a party. They're doing the Macarena. They're doing, they're doing the electric slide. They're doing the Cupid slide. They're having a good time. And then Jesus says, you know that this story isn't about a coin, right? You know what this story is about? This is about your father's heart. 
And then Jesus goes on to say, in the same way, I tell you there is what? Rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So when one person comes back home, when they find their home in Jesus, you know what happens? There is a party that explodes in heaven. We have a God that loves to party. And there's an explosion. It's like a flash mob because God wants lost people found. Amen? That's his heart. Let me ask you, have you ever considered that there is a God that's actually looking for you, that's actually searching for you? See, for Saru, when he realized that, he was, that something was missing, it put him on a search. You see, when he was adopted by his, his parents, he actually adjusted really well to Australian life and Australian culture. His parents actually adopted another Indian boy, and he had a harder time, he had a harder past. But Saru is successful, He's young, he's talented, and it seems like literally the world is his oyster, and he wants to build this identity as a successful Australian businessman. And so he's in this um, international hotel school, there's all these international students, but then this identity that Saru has kind of been building on starts to unravel, it starts to shake a little bit, because he meets actual Indians from India. Now before this, you've got to remember, Saru was adopted, if he knew other Indians, they were the same. They were adopted. And so they were, all, they were mostly culturally Australian. And so he meets these other Indians from India, and he starts to kind of get to know them. And he's hanging out with them more, and he's watching Bollywood movies with them. He's, he's listening to Indian music. He's eating Indian food. And then all of a sudden, these memories that had been forgotten for over 20 years start to come to the surface again. He starts to remember his past. He remembers the terrifying train ride that took him away and ripped him out of his home. He remembers his biological brother, Gadu, and he wonders, oh, Gadu, what did he do after he couldn't find me? He remembers his mom. He never said goodbye to his mother. What is she feeling? What is she thinking? What is she sensing? And Saru, as he's wrestling with kind of all of these different things, this identity of being this successful Australian businessman starts to fall apart, and all of a sudden he's back to being that lost little boy, back on that train, powerless to circumstances. So even in the, in the trailer, you know, Saru is asked where he's from. He goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm, not, really, I'm not really Indian, I'm Australian, right? That, because that's how he sees himself. And this may surprise you to know I'm going to call a quick time out here, but I'm actually Indian American. Sure you didn't know that. I know. It's a shock. It's a shock. And so, you know, I'm watching this movie line, and there's so many themes that's resonated that I'm, like, feeling. And one of those themes is this idea of just being lost. And I remember, you know, as a kid, just kind of feeling a little lost, like not really sure where I quite fit in the world. Because often when I was a kid, I would get this question. I still get it today. And often the question is, so, uh, where are you from? And so I, I kind of tell them, well, you know, I was born in Summit, New Jersey. I grew up in Central Jersey and, and Central New York. And, uh, you know, I ended up back, you know, back in, you know, the, you know, in New Jersey. And they kind of look at me and go, no, like, wh where are you really from? And I'm kind of at a loss because I really don't know. Like, I know what they want to know, but it's like, that's not my experience, right? Like, I literally was born and raised in the United States. That's my world. That's my culture. That's like the thing that it's how I think. It's how I see everything. And so there's a little bit of awkwardness there. But then when I hang out with some of my Indian friends, there's some awkwardness there too. 
Like, I remember um, when I was in college, I was hanging out with this, this group of, of Indian guys, and they're, and they're like saying, Nathan, this cafeteria food's awful. You know what we need? We need some good home-cooked Indian food. Uh, you seem like a big curry guy. You love lamb curry? And then I go, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> oh, you know what? Yeah, you know, how about chicken tikka masala? I know you love chicken tikka masala. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's cool. Uh, well, you know what? My, my mom made some homemade samosas. I know that you're going to love some of these. And I'm like, listen, bro, I just want chicken wings. I hate Indian food. Can we get pizza? Maybe some sushi? You know? And, you know, and they kind of give me the shocked look. And it is kind of funny, but it is a little challenging because I, I kind of, I'm like, where, where do I quite fit? Because just by my very appearance, people make assumptions. They have expectations about just who I am. And oftentimes, I can't really please anybody. And so I feel like I have, I have this one foot in kind of this American culture, this American world, and I have this other foot in this Indian culture, and I kind of feel a little torn and a little lost. And that's actually where we find Saru. Saru is kind of caught between these two worlds, and he's never experienced this before. And that is when he discovers a technology called Google Earth. How many of you guys remember Google Earth? Any of you? I remember like when Google Earth first came out, you put an address in there, and we could zoom in closer and closer and closer, and then you're like, oh, I can see Bob's backyard and his grill, and oh, there's Bob. And you're like, this is creepy, right? You're like, this is really cool, but it's really creepy. And so Saru discovers uh, Google Earth, and then all of a sudden he starts making these connections. He actually goes and starts to research how fast a train, a passenger train in 1986 would travel in India. He starts to actually make this search radius, and he's going through Google Earth, combing through it, trying to find, okay, where, where, could, I came, where could I have gone? Where, where would I have gone? And he turns his entire apartment into his search headquarters. And this becomes his obsession. He needs to find his biological family. He needs to find the home that he grew up in. And, and he's searching, and, and he gets so, such an obsession, he literally does not sleep. He loses his job. He's pushing people away. And it, it creates a lot of friction between him and his girlfriend, Lucy. In fact, it all comes to a head in this scene that we're about to watch now. Let's watch. Saru, you need to face reality. What do you mean, reality? Do you have any idea what it's like knowing my real brother and mother spend every day of their lives looking for me? Huh? How every day my real brother screams my name. Can you imagine the pain they must be in not knowing where I am? Huh? 25 years, Luce. 25! Why didn't you tell me that was happening for you? We swung about in our privileged lives. It makes me sick. I have to find home. They need to know I'm okay. I've never stopped you. I want to help. I can't do this anymore. You deserve more. Don't you do that. Don't you dare do that. This is on you, not on me. I need to find my way home. For Saru, the search is an obsession. It takes over everything. It, it breaks up him and his girlfriend. It isolates him because he can't be whole and complete until he finds home. He finds his biological family. 
In many ways, the search that Saru has is the same search that God has. God cannot be at rest until you are home with him. He is a God on the move. He is a God on the search, and nothing can stop him. In fact, Jesus really brings this point home in Luke 15, in another story we're going to look at, which is the story of the lost sheep. Verse 4, it says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the what? Lost sheep until he finds it? So, I'm not a shepherd. I think most of us aren't shepherds here, but we kind of know this does not seem like a smart business deal, right? You lose one sheep, you, you just go with the 99, right? Like, you know, if you have like 100 M&Ms and you lose one, you just keep those 99 M&Ms. But, but instead, Jesus isn't showing, this isn't an economic example. Jesus is actually showing the heart of the Father. The heart is for the one that's lost, for the one that, that doesn't know its way, for the one that is scared and lonely. That's the heart of God. In fact, it goes on and says this in the next verse, that when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, what's this word? Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. So the shepherd finds the sheep that is lost. He puts it on his shoulders. He says, guys, we need to celebrate. The sheep that was lost is now found. We need to have a block party. We need to invite everyone. And we need to get the word out. And then Jesus does that switch again. He says this, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more what? Rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, and over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see, this is the heart of God. God wants lost people found, amen? God is not, is not satisfied if someone is lost. He sends out a search party. He sends out boats. He sends out planes. He sends out helicopters. He doesn't just use Google Earth. He uses Google Heaven and Earth to find you. That is the heart of our Father. He will not stop until you come home. In fact, there's another story in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, where God actually describes himself as this father, and he's grief-stricken. He's frantic. He's saying, where is my son? He's looking in the distance, waiting for his son to come back. If you're a parent and you've lost your child, you know what that feels like, right? I remember a couple years ago when we were at church one day, we, we lost our daughter, and in church, all these people are coming and going, and so we are frantic. It feels like our heart is about to come out of our chest, and we're looking for her. We're trying to find her. We're grabbing other people's kids to make sure they're not stealing our kid, you know? And finally, you know, we find her in the office playing with the shredder, and she was okay. She was all right. But that sense of panic and that sense of franticness, every parent knows what that's like when you can't find the one that is closest to you. And yet here, Saru finds himself pushing the people closest to him away, like his adopted parents. You see, Saru didn't tell his parents, his adopted parents, that he was searching for his biological family because he was so grateful for what they had done for him. He was afraid that he was going to hurt them. He was afraid that he was going to alienate them. And so he ended up just kind of not telling them, shutting down. And... Some of you, you kind of know what that tension's like. You have some kids that you've adopted, and they're your kids, period. But those kids, you know, they have within them that desire to know where they came from. And so you as a parent, you're living kind of in that tension. And Saru knows that full well. He, he know, he's so grateful and so thankful for everything his adopted family has done for him. But there's a part of him that needs to find his biological family, what happened to them. 
And so while his brother is, is not doing well, he's addicted to, to drugs, and there's apparently a really bad fight between his brother and his parents, uh, Saru goes to, to visit his mom. And he learns something about himself. That is something that I think we need to learn about the heart of God. Let's watch. John heard Mantosh is out on the boat. Doing the lobster run. It's due back tomorrow. So I'll be flush for cash back on the hard stuff. Sorry you couldn't have your own kids. What do you say? Man, we weren't blank pages, were we? Like your own would have been. You weren't just adopting us, but our past as well. And I feel like we're killing you. I could have had kids. What? We chose not to have kids. We wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. That's what we chose. We wanted you. Saru's adopted mom, she could have had her own kids. She said, no, 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 I, I wanted you. All your baggage, all the brokenness, all the pain, I wanted you. Your heavenly father, he's saying right now that I wanted you. I know for some of you in this room, you had earthly parents that did not want you. They hurt you and they abused you and they abandoned you. But your heavenly father says, I am not them. He wants to take you by, by your face and just tell you, I want you. I choose you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I'm looking for you. Because that's what Jesus did for me. You know, as I was growing up, kind of between these two divided selves, I remember just kind of trying to push down this kind of Indian side of me because I was ashamed. Because of the racism and the bullying, I, I tried to distance myself from it. And if I'm really honest, I hated myself. And there are times I would think, you know what, God, maybe it's better if I just wasn't here anymore. And then God took me by the face and he found me and said, Nathan, I want you. I choose you. And then Jesus brought me into his forever family. And it gave me an identity that transcended everything. And I'm like, if, if God can accept me and all my brokenness, and even in the shame and the self-hatred, maybe I can accept myself too. Maybe I don't have to live with shame in my life. 
I know there's some of you here and you live with this self-hatred and shame. And maybe some of you have even thought about, what if I just end it all? No one will care. But your heavenly father right now wants to take you by the face and say, I choose you. I want you. I've been searching for you. Searching. So Saru is searching for his family. You know, there's this one verse before we go there that I want to share with you. And it's this. Psalm 68, 6. God sets the lonely in families. You're here today and you're lonely. Our God is searching for you and he has a family for you to belong to. And so as Saru is searching for his biological family, he's got Google Earth, but even that's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And all he has to go by is hazy memories and these blurry Google Maps, but he starts to scroll and he keeps scrolling and scrolling. In fact, he does this for the equivalent of six years. He works a day job, then all night long, he searches until he starts to see things that are familiar, like this water tower right here. Then he starts to scroll more. He starts to follow the train tracks. And as a little boy, five-year-old boy, you know, you, you can't, don't always hear things the right way. And he's been saying, where is Ganesteli? Where is Ganesteli? And then he comes to this village and realizes it wasn't Ganesteli. It was Ganesh Talai. finds his home, and he hasn't, he hasn't been there and seen it for 25 years. So he goes and he buys a plane ticket. He flies to India, where he's found by his biological mother. Let's watch. Salut. 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 
Imagine, <clears throat> 25 years later, that little boy that you lost comes back, and 25 years of grief just goes up in a flame with joy because he's home. And then you meet the mother who adopted him and cared for him and loved him. Why does this hit us so hard? Like, why do we weep when we see these? These, well, these homecomings, it's because it's an echo. We were made for eternity. This is an echo that one day we will be with our Father in heaven and he'll welcome us home. And just like the woman who, who lost her coin in Luke, you know what's going to happen? She calls her friends and neighbors and together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. I found my lost son. I found what was lost. And in that scene, we see all of uh, the village come out and celebrate because their lost son had come back. Your father is looking for you, searching for you. He's saying, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. I want you to come home. I want you to come back. I will not stop until you're found. And when you're found, you know what's going to happen? I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
I don't know where you are today, but your heavenly father is looking for you. Right now, he sees you as that little boy, as that little girl who's lost. And he wants to find you so he can take you in his arms and say, it's okay, you're home now. Welcome home. I don't know what you've been told about God, that you've told, been told he's a distant, angry God, but he's a loving father that wants you to come home. He wants to heal you and protect you, restore you. And I want to give you an opportunity today, if you've never come home, to come home to your father. In fact, why don't we all stand? All across our campuses, let's just stand. And I just want you to pray this prayer with me. I'm just going to speak these words. I'm just going to ask you to repeat them after me. Father God, I'm coming home. I've been away for a long time, but I'm coming home. Father, I've been an orphan, and I'm coming home into your arms for all eternity. Amen. And if that's the first time you've prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you into the forever family of God. Can we welcome our brothers and sisters that are now home? <laughs>